And if you'd grab your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, it's going to be page 996. We're going to be in chapter 5, verses 22, all the way through chapter 6, verse 9. There's a lot of, there's a lot of meat in our text today, a lot of things that we could talk about, a lot of things that God said, could say to us. I have to admit, I'm, I'm moving quickly. Next week, is, uh, I'm going to be finishing the book of Ephesians, and then uh, I'll have a number of weeks off this summer and be back at, in August to begin preaching again. And, and I know that I'm trying to get done with the book of, of Ephesians. I know there's enough Sundays when people come out in the lobby and they say, oh, I missed this fill-in-the-blank thing. You know, what's that word there? And they get, they get kind of freaked out you know, when they missed one. And I figured if we just stopped in the middle of the book, some of you would be freaked out all summer. So we figured we'd kind of rush through it and, and get done with it. But... I really think there's some great truths for us to see here today. And, you know, um, it often seems in politics, right, that the way people get elected is they figure out which way the people are already going, and then they just try to get out ahead of them, right? Let's take a poll and see what they support, and then I'll make that my position, and I'll get elected. Usually probably doesn't do us a whole lot of good, but that's the way it works a lot of times, right? Please the most offend the least, and you'll win. You would think with Christianity, as it was launching in the first century, and was trying to move beyond Jerusalem, that it would emphasize or try to say, you know what, let, let's, let's try to agree with and support as, as much. Let's, let's get into the pieces that everybody can buy into, and let's leave the more controversial, revolutionary stuff off to the side, you know? Let's minimize the barriers, if you will, to people being excited about the possibility that Jesus really is the Son of God. Let's talk about forgiveness. Let's talk about reconciliations. Let's talk about the blessings of God and et cetera. And, and we're going to find in our text today that that's not what the first century church did at all. They, they, they weren't trying to lead people where they already wanted to go. They were, they were really open to being used of God to create a revolution. Just a radical change across the board. And you don't see it, you, you see it tremendously clear in this text if you just step back a little bit and take a look at it. You know, we've been working our way through the book of Ephesians and in chapter 1 through 3, we, we have seen how God is, Paul has laid out for us how God is, is uniting all of the world together in Christ. He's bringing us back to Christ to himself through faith. He's bringing Jew and Greek, all men together as one before God. It's because we all we have to respond to God in the exact same way. We come to God in the same way. And he's uniting all creation, man, and back together in Christ. And this is an extremely high calling. And so in chapter 4, he starts talking about the implications. What does it mean for you and I to live a life that God has reunited to himself? And so he talks about what does it mean to live in a manner worthy of the calling that we have. And in chapter 5, verse 22, he turns to the core of where life really is. And that's the home. And so in chapter, beginning with verse 22 through verse 9 of chapter 6, he deals with the relationship between husbands and wives. He deals with the relationship between parents and children. And he deals with the relationship between masters and slaves. And some of us say, really? You know, in, in the home? Well, household slaves were a fixture in the ancient world. 
You know, they were just a fixture. In fact, some of the writings we have indicate that in the time of, of Paul, there may have been as many as 60 million slaves in the Roman world. More people were enslaved than not. In fact, in a, in, in a Roman government, you had the emperor, but pretty much all the people, like the finance treasurer and all those guys, they were all slaves. They, they weren't other Roman citizens. They were all slaves. You know, the, the objective was for the citizens to do no work, and we let the slaves do everything else. And so there's 60 million, and they were a fixture in the home. They were a part of home life. So Paul begins to implement or talk about what does it really mean to live a life that's worthy of being reunited with God and with other men? What does it really mean to live a life like that in the place where we really are ourselves the most? And that's in the home. So we're going to pick up our story here in chapter, chapter 5, verse 22. I'm going to do a section by section a little bit and give you some context and, and show you how radical the changes are and then try to make just a couple of, uh, of, of insights. And first of all, let's, let's talk about marriage in the ancient world. What, what was married life like? Well, in the Jewish world, they struggled with what did it mean when, when, when Moses had written, you know, that, you know, if a man divorces his wife, he should give her a certificate of divorce and send her away. You know, if he finds any indecency in his wife, Deuteronomy 24.1, finds any indecency in his wife, he should give her a certificate of divorce and to send her away. So there, there was, for centuries, there was raging conversation about what does it really mean to have something indecent in our, in, in, in our lives, to justify sending away. And you, you know who's doing all the interpreting, right? It's the men. And you know, because of the hardness of men's heart, the more liberal understanding is going to win out over the more conservative. Sound familiar in our own society, right? So here you had this one school of thought that said, you know, they were the more liberal group, said, you know, an indecent, finding an indecency in your wife could be, you know what, she's just not a good enough cook. She, she, you know, she just is always screwing up the bacon, you know, which is funny, right, related to Jews, right? That's why I'm trying to be funny there a little bit. You know, and that's it, she's out, and, and you're gone. Or maybe she just can't sew. And your clothes look terrible. So you say, you know what? You're gone. Maybe, maybe she just snores at night. She's gone. Or maybe you find somebody younger and prettier who's willing to marry you. She's gone. And that's, that's the attitude that had been adopted by the vast majority of the Jewish world. So much so that Jewish girls began to ask the question, is it really worth getting married? Now you come over to the next world, the Greek world, which is just to the west, the picture was even worse. You, you can go back and you can look at their writings, and, and this is what they actually said out loud by leaders, that we have courtesans read temple prostitutes for pleasure. We have concubines for companionship. And we have wives to raise our children and manage our households. Sounds great, doesn't it? I, I mean, that, that's... That, it's not so good, right? How many, of you, how many of the women here are ready to sign up for that today? You know, I mean, it's just, that's, that's the way it was. Men were in charge. You get over to the Roman world, and this incredible transformation had occurred. You know, for the first 500 years of the Roman Empire, you, you, you never once read about a divorce. There was not a single entry in any legal documents about a divorce. You get about, about 250 years before the life of Christ, and they had the first experience of a divorce. 
By the time you get to the first century when Paul's writing, people just had serial marriages. You know, they they didn't keep track of their lives anymore by, well, I did this in the 70s and this in the 80s. It's like, so, well, that was when I was married to so-and-so, and and that was when I was married to so-and-so. We have records, there are records that show that that one woman was married to eight different guys in five years. I mean, that, that there were people who were married over 20 times. You know, it's just serious. We, we have records of, of an emperor telling a man to divorce his wife who was pregnant with his child because the emperor wanted to marry her. I mean, that, that's the way married life was. That, that, that's the context in which Paul is writing, right? So you would think that really challenging that at any kind of really high level is going to really be difficult for people to embrace the gospel. Listen to what God says to Paul. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, is also Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So far, the husbands are liking this. The wives are thinking, how is this anything different than what we've already been doing? But then Paul switches in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as also Christ loved the church and gave himself for, for her to make her holy, cleansing her in the washing of water by the word. And there's a reference there to the gospel being preached and people responding by faith and then being baptized as a symbol of their being cleansed by their faith in Christ, being reconciled to God, if you will, re, re, you know, put back together with God. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their very own bodies. He who loves himself, he who loves his wife, loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but he provides and he cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh." This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. To sum up, each of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. So in this context in which marriage was all about what the man could get out of it, Paul steps in and he says God's ideal is marriage is about what you can give. It's not about what you can get, it's about what you can give. A wife is supposed to give herself to her husband. He uses the word submission. He uses the words respect, but it's about giving yourself to your husband completely. Husbands are supposed to give themselves completely to their wives. There's supposed to be a, a passion, a, a commitment, a, a priority, a value. That, that really, it's, a, it's like your life mission is to bless and to grow and to nurture and edify your spouse. Sounds really pretty radical, doesn't it? You see a lot of guys signing up on the dotted line to go from, well, marriage is all about me, and now somehow i got to make it about us. I... But Christianity changes the world. Let's continue on just a little bit. Let's talk about parents and children. In, in the Jewish world, children were, were protected somewhat legally, but fathers still had tremendous levels of control over them, and in particular, Jewish parents were known for being extremely harsh and strict with their kids. I mean, 
the thing they didn't want to do is they didn't want their kids breaking the law, right? Because that's how you got to be a part of the covenant, the promise. And so they were just tremendously difficult with their children. I mean, they just, just would, it, was, it was almost like it was bone-crushing levels of discipline. And, 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 and many times the kids just got exasperated. They just kind of broke down. They just couldn't handle the weight anymore, you know, of what was being asked of them. And, and, and as being raised as a Pharisee, the Apostle Paul knew all about what he's talking about. In the Roman world, it was different. The fathers literally had the power of life and death over their children. Now, once the kids started to grow a little bit, it was hardly ever practiced that a, child, that a father would have his child put to death. wasn't totally unheard of, but it wasn't very common. But they actually maintained that father authority, fatherly authority over their kids for as long as they were alive. You never outgrew it. It's not like when you get to 21, you're out of here and you're gone, you know, kind of idea. I spoke to a guy yesterday, his 18-year-old is moving out, and, and he was heartbroken about it, but there's nothing that he can do to stop his daughter from moving out. She's 18. That, that didn't happen in the ancient world. You were under your father's thumb until he died. In fact, we have letters written back to home from Roman men who were traveling. And often there were words of affection and asking how the children were doing, this and that. And, but we, but in, mixed in there is like if, if the woman was pregnant and the husband wasn't going to be home when the baby was delivered, they'd leave in instructions on what to do. Well, if it's a girl, get rid of it. If it's a boy and it's healthy, keep it. If it's a boy and it's kind of weak, get rid of it. And what the Romans did in Rome is that they literally just took the children down to the Roman Colosseum and they just left them. Just left them. Nobody picked them up, they died. There were people who went by usually most nights and picked up the kids because they would either sell the boys off into slaveries or they would sell the girls off into prostitution. And they made a living off of that. So that's, that's parenting in the ancient world. Listen to what Paul says. Children... Obey your parents in the Lord, because this is just right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may have a long life in the land. This idea of the first commandment means it's like a, probably the priority. This is the first one you've got to get right as a child. And what he's really saying is that you need to wholeheartedly embrace the God-given role that your parents have in your life you need not just to try to manage or whatever. You need to appreciate it. You need to value. You need to respect it. You need to honor them. Look what it says in verse 4. And fathers, just don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. You dads, it's not about having rights. You need to embrace your responsibility to grow these kids the way you're supposed to. It's not about what you can do. It's about what you should do. It's revolutionary. Changing the world. Then he goes on to talks about slaves and masters. You know, maybe we would do better with employees and employers and that kind of idea. That's a part of our everyday lives. But this is literally where you live. This was at home. You know, these, these people were literally parts of your household. They were there every time you took a meal, every time you woke up. They were just always there. But these are in this pieces. And again, it's a brutal world. The, the, they used to speak about having three types of tools on their asset sheets. One was the inanimate tools. 
These were your hammers, your saws, your hoes, right? These were just, just stuff. Then they talked about their inarticulate tools. The horses, the camels, you know, the, the donkeys, those kinds of things. Pigs or whatever, you know, uh, sheep. Those were, the in, those were the inarticulate tools. And then they used to talk about their articulate tools. And those were the slaves who could speak and could communicate. All in the same category. No difference between a slave and a hammer. In fact, there were writings back and forth. They had discussions about when, when should you stop feeding a slave in terms of how much work they could put out. When they got old and sickly or if they got disabled or whatever, when do you just stop feeding them because they can't, they can't it's just not worth it to keep them alive. They can't produce enough of a return. Wonderful world, right? Listen to what Paul says. Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Don't work only while being watched in order to please men, but as slaves of Christ, do God's will from your heart. Render service with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. So Paul here is writing to the church that had lots of slaves in it. And he says to the slaves, remember, you're working for God, you're not working for your master. You're working for God, you're not working for your master. Make sure you do excellence all the time. But there's a twist here in verse 9. In masters, treat them the same way without threatening them, Because you know that both their and your master is in heaven. And there's no favoritism with him. To the masters, he says, listen, these aren't just articulate tools. These people are precious children of God just like you. And you better treat them as though they matter to God. Talking about turning the world upside down. Christianity, the gospel, is about revolution. It's not about incremental change, it's not about, but it's about revolution. It's radical change. Now, listen, there, there's a, a lot that we could work our way through in this text. That would apply. We, could, we could spend the next two or three weeks just talking about the implications of what Paul's teaching for our marriages or for our parenting or for the way we do work as, as employees and employers. So, we'll give Phil a minute to make his way out. (laughs) But I want to tell you, you know, some of us have been over that territory before, and it doesn't seem to change anything. We can learn all this stuff about giving ourselves passionately to our spouses. It's about serving them. It's about growing them. It's about nurturing them. We can learn all this stuff and the communication and how to diffuse. We, We can do all that stuff. But, there are a couple of underlying principles in this text that if we don't get those, the rest of them is just behavior manage- management. It doesn't have anything to do with changing our perspective and being shaped into the image of Christ, of living lives that are worthy of the calling that we have in God. And, and, I, and I just want to point these couple things out to you. We've just got a few minutes left, but I just want you to see these. First of all is the word value. What Christianity brought to the first century and what it looks to bring to our lives today 
is a change in which we, in how we see one another. Look at verse nine of chapter six. Paul says, "And masters, you got to treat them the same way. You got to treat them with care, without threatening them, because you know that both their and your masters in heaven." What, what, what Paul is is saying to the masters. And through that lens to all of us is that the way that we treat other people is dictated by the fact that they're priceless in the eyes of God. And the way that we treat other people tells us whether or not we really have respect or reverence for God in the first place. We're going to get back to that last part in just a minute. It's a powerful word. I did a wedding yesterday, my nephew's wedding. And uh, he's married uh, this nice, lovely young lady, and, and the father walked her. It was an outdoor wedding. It was blazing hot. People were meeting, melting in the seats, that kind of thing. They had a long walk out of the house to get there, and the father walks her down. And, you know, he was in the Army for 23 years, sergeant. You know, he gets down to the front, and he's got sweat dripping off of him or whatever, and he's standing there. And I get through the greeting and the invocation, and I, I do the... Who gives this woman to be married to this man part, you know? And, and he says, her mother and I do. And he, and, he, and he lifts his daughter's veil and he gives her a kiss. And then he grabs my nephew Russell's hand and he begins to join them together. And he looks at Russell and he says, you better treat her good. Now, why did he do that? Because he cares about his daughter, right? He, he loves her. She's, she's precious to him. You know, I... About 30 years ago, Christina and I got married. July 21st will be 30 years. I, I can guarantee you when she and I left our reception and started off in our life together, her parents, Paul and Pat, weren't certain back of the house saying, you know what, boy, I hope he really teaches her a lesson if she gets out of line. You just know they're not thinking that, right? Boy, if she just mouths off, I hope he just whacks her one, you know? I mean, they're not thinking that kind of stuff. Why? Because they love their daughter, Right? And, and because of the love that they have for her, they have a lot of feelings about the way they want me to treat her. My son got married in January. I probably have more concerns about how he's going to treat his new wife than the other way. But th- th- there certainly was a part and is a part of that journey that I hope my daughter-in-law, Jillian, who is lovely, that she's going to love my son with her whole heart. And that she's never going to break his heart. Why? Because I care about my son. And what, what God is saying to us is every single person who's in our world, I care about them. And you better treat them accordingly. And I want to tell you, until we get that right, the rest of this is very difficult to do. Until we get to the fact that every single person who's a part of our lives is precious in the eyes of God, and he wants them to be treated with care and with dignity, with a mission to grow them in Christ or share the gospel with them and have compassion and mercy and all that. I got to tell you, we're just not going to get it right. I mean, the next time somebody's, you're out in the highway and somebody's cutting you off and you're tempted to kind of bring up the, you know, you got to think, you know, God loves that person. Man, I'm going to put that back. You know, that's just the way it is. And I, 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 I tell you, we struggle this way because usually we determine the worth of other people based upon how they behave and how it impacts us. If you're not doing me any good, you deserve what you get from me kind of idea. I want you to see another reality out of this. 
And that's, so you have the word value. And then I want you to see the word responsibility. When, when Christianity brought a dimension to our relationships that had never really been there before. It was about responsibilities. It wasn't about rights. Let me, let me point out just a few things to you from the text. Chapter 5, verse 22. Notice it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. That means you're doing this not because of who your husband is, but because of who you are in your relationship with Christ. You pick up verse 29. It says, For no one ever hates his own body, but provides for it and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church. Jesus loves the church, and we as husbands are supposed to love our wives as a part of our own bodies because because that's the way Jesus cares for the church. It's our responsibility to him in terms of the way we behave to our spouses. You continue on. Verse um, 6, chapter 6, verse 1. Obey your parents in the Lord. Okay? And then fathers are supposed to bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And you come down to verse 5. It says, slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling and sincerity as to Christ. And, and, And here's what Paul is teaching and what God's trying to share with us. Our behavior towards other people is supposed to be governed by our relationship with Christ, not by their behavior. If you don't get that right, all the rest of the stuff is going to be very difficult to implement. Yeah, I know I'm supposed to love my wife as Christ loved the church, but she's a real jerk. How can you expect me to do that? And Paul would say it's because of who you are in Christ, not because of who she is as my spouse. The phrasing that's kind of been developed out there is about being a a God-centered spouse rather than a spouse-centered spouse. We can expand that out here to say it's about being a God-centered father, not a kid-centered father. It's about being a God-centered child, not a parent-centered child. Or a slave or a master. You know, over and over again, the way we react we process our circumstances, the way we relate to other people, the value, all that's supposed to, is supposed to be dictated by who we are in Christ and our relationship with Him, not how they're treating us. So why, why does that matter? And why is it so important? Let me give you this illustration, because I, I think that it really gets at the heart of where a lot of us struggle. You know, I had a friend of mine who's gone to be with the Lord name now. His name was Bob, and great servant, gentle spirit. His wife, Susan, was just a, a sweetheart, a saint of a lady, you know. But whenever I saw Bob, I asked him, so how's your wife doing? He'd say, well, she's mean as a snake, you know. And that's what he'd say all the time, she's mean as a snake, you know. So imagine that Christina's as mean as a snake. Now, you guys laugh, but, you know, it might not be. Anyways. <laughs> But let's just say over 30 years of marriage, she's changed. And now she's kind of grumpy and crabby. She snores at night and drools and kicks and, and all, all these wonderful things, right? And, and so, you know what? I get to a position to say, you know what? I really can't love her the same way anymore. 
So I get neglectful. I get somewhat abusive. Maybe even get to a place to say, you know what? I, I, you know, she's not giving me what I need. I, I'm going to give it to somebody else, and I'm unfaithful. And, and imagine then a couple of Christian brothers come alongside. And they say, man, you know, you, you're, just, you're just ripping your, your, your spiritual life apart. What are you doing? You've got to change. And imagine if I said back to them, well, I can change as soon as she does because she's made me like this. Now, as wrong as that whole statement is, think about it this way. When we're doing that, we're making our spiritual condition, we're allowing our spiritual condition to be held hostage by somebody else. That our relationship with God is affected by the way somebody else is treating us or not treating us. And I got to tell you, I, I, I think that thought pattern is totally foreign from the New Testament. God wants our relationship with him to be governed by our faith in him alone, regardless of what's going on around us. And so when he teaches us in these passages is, hey, listen, your relationships and who you are in the midst of those, that responsibility flows out of who you are before me, not who you are in relationship to them. And when you take those two things and you put them together, that you value those who are around you because they are priceless in the eyes of God, and they deserve your reverence and respect because of that, and the fact that we are responsible before God to be the people that he wants us to be, no matter what's going on around us, that's where we see Paul start this whole journey by saying we need to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So let me submit this thought to you, and we'll be done for today. How we treat others is probably the best reflection of what we think about God. If we don't have much reverence and respect for God, our treatment of others in terms of grace and mercy and love, and that kind of, it's going to be just kind of, yeah. But if we have a deep, Reverence and respect for God, it's going to transform the way that we care for other people. Because we're going to value them like we never have before. And we're going to, we're going to have a sense of divine responsibility and divine empowerment that we've never seen before. So what do your relationships say about your reverence for Christ? Let's pray together. God, a lot in this word we're not going to have it settled in our hearts and our minds by the time we leave this building in just a few minutes. So God, I pray that your spirit would continue just to apply him to our lives. God, you know, I, I, I'm always just so captivated by what our lives could be like if we live the way that you really have taught us in these passages. What our relationships would be like what our homes would be like. God, give us a reverence for you. It makes us value people and act towards them in a way that's pleasing to you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.